Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Art Georges from Living Hope Community Church, and it's good to be with you. You know, Pastor Daniel is over at Living Hope this morning, and uh, I spent the first part of this worship service at the way back, uh, sitting down because I, you know, you know how this goes. You preach a message, and then they say that that's like eight hours preaching. 40 minutes, like eight hours. So this, I'm doing my second shift now, and uh, I'm getting old. I, I'm, I'm older than Daniel, so uh, it, I, I thought I would uh, sit down and worship with you uh, from the beginning. Usually, when we do this pulpit swap, um, I bring my family. They come in the second service and park down here, and my wife worries, and she uh, she always worries when I preach somewhere else because you know our people love me and they'll put up with me, and she worries when I go somewhere else, and and so. She is in service this morning. She's uh, teaching fours and fives. And I said, don't worry, don't go. I don't like her worrying. And I'm just going to tell her it went great. I'm going to tell her what a guy told us in seminary when he would listen to seminarians preach. He'd say, well, no one lost their salvation. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Uh, You know, uh, how encouraging to know that what could not happen did not happen. I'm just so encouraged. But it is good to be with you. Um, and if you haven't, if, if you're new this morning, um, come back next week because the pastor is really good and you'll love him. I love him to death. He's one of my favorite people. But the way that we've worked this, um, this pulpit swap started between Pastor Rich Burkle and myself um, at Christmas time. We were the first plant in Bartonville, and so Rich got this great idea, hey, just think if we switch pulpits after Christmas, we won't have to study during Christmas week and we can spend time with our families. And then when we had this church plant out here, Daniel's like, hey, what about me? So he said, well, what about Labor Day? Which, you know, you're not really trying to relax around Labor Day all that much. And so I'm not sure he gets the benefit of it the way that we had uh, tried to uh, arrange it in the beginning. But um, we generally preach a message that we've already preached at our own church, and that gives us time during that week to, at Christmas time, spend with family, or at this point, to spend time ministering and doing other things, catching up. And so we're kind of dropping in uh, to where we've been as a church in Acts, in the book of Acts. I did find out after first service that Daniel had preached uh, at least referencing Acts chapter 7 last week, and I'm going to take you back to the same, uh, same area, but we're not going to deal with the same aspect, thankfully, so you aren't going to get a repeat. I remember going to a church where they had two visiting pastors su- subsequently, and they preached the same passage, and it was so embarrassing for the second one, and so I'm not going to do that to you, but I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Acts and find your place in chapter 7. But as you're finding your place there, I want to cover some ground before we get into the passage this morning. We're going to look at the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. The reason I think that this is so powerful, it can be in our lives, is because we are entering a time in the history of our nation, in in the culture that we live in, where we will likely be persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. 
especially if you are going to be the type of Christian that God wants you to be, where you are uh, willing to share your faith, willing to share it in a way that is respectful and reverent, and yet because it's truth, it conflicts and it condemns by the truth the one that listens. We as the Christian church that uh, truly believe God's word truly believe that there's no other way to get to the Father except through the Son. That's a very exclusive message. It's a very unpopular message. And so uh, we come to this passage because I believe that it can be great encouragement for us today. But I've entitled this message, Spirit-Filled Martyrdom. Because the reality is, if you and I are going to um, truly stand firm in the faith, then we must be filled with the Spirit. That was the situation with Stephen, the one who is the focus of this passage, humanly speaking, this morning. And it must be true for you and I. But as I say that, some of you are thinking, okay, I don't even know what that would look like. You might not admit that, but you're saying in your mind, well, how do you become filled with the Spirit? I want to suggest to you this morning that being filled with the Spirit is not as mystical as it sounds. But first, you need to remember that every one of us here this morning and everyone who has ever been born again has received the Holy Spirit has received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So if, if I can prove that to you first and then show you that being filled with the Spirit is something different than being indwelt by the Spirit, then we can take advantage of the indwelling of the Spirit to understand how we become filled with the Spirit. So put your fingers right where you're at in Acts chapter 7. I want to ask you to turn back to the Gospel of John first. John 14 first, the the, the the book that is just to the left of the book of Acts. And John 14, it records Jesus' last teaching with his disciples before he was crucified. And in John 14, beginning in verse 16, Jesus is preparing them for his departure, but he is telling them, he is encouraging them that he is going to send the helper. He says in verse 16 of John chapter 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Look on at verse 23 here in John 14. He says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He's speaking of the indwelling and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus would send after he was glorified. Verse 24, or rather, let's go on to chapter 16 of John's Gospel turning over just several chapters, John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. 
Look at verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative. Uh, he will, but who, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Let me summarize what we've essentially heard here. And I know you know this, but we need to remind ourselves of this, especially if we are to follow in Stephen's footsteps in the face of future persecution. What we've learned is that the Holy Spirit, called the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, is with each and every believer. His presence uh, is an abiding presence with, with each and every believer who has placed their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the free gift of eternal life. And because he is the abiding presence of God, he guides, he guides the believer into all truth. Okay? So it's not enough for us to say that the Holy Spirit will guard and keep the believer. We have to, we have to say how. How does that work? If you're like me, you struggle when someone tells you that something will or does happen, but they don't explain to you how it happens. And we need to ask ourselves, how is it that the Holy Spirit guards us and keeps us from falling away from the faith? What we're going to recognize this morning is that the way the Holy Spirit keeps and protects a believer is by establishing him or her and strengthening them in the truth of God's word. Let me say that again. The way that the Holy Spirit keeps and guards the believer from falling away from the faith is by establishing them and keeping them it confirmed and, and confident that the word of God is true. And in order for that to happen effectively, do you know what needs to, be happen, needs to happen? The believer needs to know the word of God. The believer needs to know the word of God. Listen, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not the same as being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, okay? Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we've learned there in John 14 and John 16. Jesus would send. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? He says, you've been bought with a price, and now you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in your body. So that tells us without a doubt that each and every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But that does not mean that each and every believer is filled by the Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's sort of a way to understand the distinction. Some pastor has said this that has a radio ministry. I don't know which one, but I heard it. I thought it was good, and I'm going to pass it on to you. I'm not taking credit for it myself. With respect to the Holy Spirit filling you or controlling you, the question is, is he president of your life or is he simply resident in your life? 
In other words, being filled with the Holy Spirit means that you allow the Holy Spirit to control you, to guide you, to motivate and change all of your life. So to be filled with the Spirit is to give him authority in each and every instance. To be indwelt simply means that he's with you and that much is true for every believer. It's a little like a car engine. Generally speaking, every car has an engine. But you must put gasoline in the engine for the, for the engine to be able to run and transport you. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. Each and every believer has the Holy Spirit, but you must put the Word of God into your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to testify to its truthfulness, its effectiveness, the truths that can guide you in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Galatians 5.16 cautions the believer that if they do not walk by the Spirit, they will fulfill the deeds of the flesh. So now, Before we get into our passage here in Acts 7, let's talk about how we can be filled with the Spirit. Let's demystify what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can obey it. Because the the Scriptures teach us, they command us as believers to be filled with the Spirit. So thankfully, there are two passages written by the Apostle Paul that exhort the believer to do similar things as spirit-filled believers. One passage, which is probably the most familiar passage to you uh, in this category, is Ephesians chapter 5. You may remember that great passage that begins in verse 18 of chapter 5, and it says, do not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be filled with wine, which is wastefulness or dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And then Paul goes on and catalogs what will be true in your life if you are filled with the Spirit. Okay? The reason that he brings up the whole issue of wine in Ephesus is because the Ephesian believers were saved out of a pagan religion wherein they would fill themselves up on wine, reach this ecstatic place where they would commune or think that they were communing with their God, and they thought that that was true worship. Now they have been saved out of that, and so Paul says, no longer be filled with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another, submitting to one another. And so he's commanding us to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit. We have a saying about when you are filled with alcohol, that you are under the influence. And rather, we want to be under the influence of the Spirit, but we still need to know how. If Scripture commands us to do it, then Scripture must somewhere tell us how. There is a companion passage, and it is in Colossians chapter 3. And the significance of this is it's written by the same Apostle Paul, and he attributes the same actions to two different things, but are they different things? What he attributes to not being filled with wine, but being filled by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, he attributes to being filled with the Word of God in Colossians 3. In other words, when we put these two passages together, 
it helps us to understand that what it means to be filled with the Spirit is to allow the Word of Christ to dwell richly in you. So if we are to be filled with the Spirit, we must be men and women of the Word of God. So, having said that, being filled with the Spirit is not simply the absence of alcohol, but it is the presence of God's Word controlling the believer, uh, causing them to grow more and more confident in the truthfulness of God's Word and living it out accordingly. And so, as we come back to Acts chapter 7 now, in a message that I have entitled, Spirit-Filled Martyrdom, we now know how we might emulate Stephen's martyrdom if we were called to. If you and I were to face persecution, which we will, I believe, and who knows that we would be required to um, submit even to the point of death, but if we are to successfully honor Christ in doing so, we must be filled with the Spirit as Stephen was. So let me read the passage for you. We're in Acts chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 54. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. I am reading from the New American Standard uh, version of God's Word. I believe you, in general, have the ESV. I used to bring my ESV, but it doesn't sit flat. And so I thought, okay, you guys are smart people. That's what I've heard. Daniel's told me that you guys are really smart. So you'll be able to follow along in your ESV as I read from the New American Standard Version, beginning in verse 54 from Acts chapter 7. Now, when they heard this, what's this? Okay, Stephen has just, which I believe Pastor Daniel taught you about last week, he has just preached a message really summarizing the entire Old Testament and the hard-heartedness of Israel, how they had rejected God's presence, his prophets, and ultimately it culminated in their killing the prophets all the way up to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Stephen, as he finishes his sermon, he says, you guys are hard-hearted, you have uncircumcised hearts, and you have killed the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are mad. Verse 54, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This becomes the Apostle Paul when he is converted several chapters later in Acts chapter 9. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's sort of like 
what the men sounded like when they rushed on Stephen with one impulse. They were screaming like that, that little guy right there. That's good for, you know, a little illustration. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Interestingly, that's exactly what God told them to. Christ said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And so now, through persecution, they are being spread out, except the apostles. They returned to Jerusalem Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Friends, it is my belief that not only will we, by standing for Christ, by proclaiming the gospel as we are called to do, be hated, but we will be called to suffer on behalf of our message. I I believe it's right around the corner, and I don't say that in order to scare you. I say that in order to prepare you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said to his disciples, I'm telling you that you are going to suffer. I'm telling you this beforehand so that when it happens, you might have peace. You see, when we can expect what might be down the pike, then we can have peace when it happens because we know that we are on the right track. And this morning, we want to learn at the feet of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Uh, We are told that Stephen was filled with the Spirit. We we learned that back in Acts chapter 6 as he is selected uh, by um, the, the people as one of the early deacons. We learned that also as he is doing signs, miracles, and wonders. Remember, those miracles that Stephen performed were not to bring uh, attention to himself, but to his message. And Stephen was proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. And he was doing so as a spirit-filled Christian. And we want to learn from him. We want to take encouragement from Stephen so that if we are called to suffer for our faith, that we will be able to stand firm just as Stephen was able to. And so would you Bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord before we get into the thick of this message and ask him to open our hearts to the truths of this passage that we might be built up and encouraged by it. Gracious Father, we thank you that for those of us who have believed, it has been appointed to us to believe. But your word says also that it's been appointed to us not only to believe but to suffer on behalf of Christ, to suffer for the message of the truth, the only truth that will save men and women everywhere. And so would you help us to stand firm, to be steadfast, immovable? Would you help us to to face any potential suffering with confidence that you are a good and loving God and you have not abandoned us? that you even counted a favor that we should suffer on behalf of our Savior. And so we pray that you would open our hearts up to this truth this morning so that we might bring glory to Christ in the future. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, we're told that Stephen demonstrates 
that he was spirit-filled. And what does that mean? Well, it's obvious that what it meant was that he was richly filled with the word of God. He had the word of Christ dwelling richly in him. All of the messianic passages in the Old Testament were affirmed to his heart because he knew scripture and he was able to proclaim that to others. And even as he's suffering, he emulates Christ as he cries out, Uh, that their sin might not be held against them. And so here's the big question. How did Stephen do it? And if you and I are called to suffer, how could we possibly be willing to suffer even to the point of death? And and so what I want us to walk away with from this passage, sort of the main idea, is that we must be filled with the Spirit if we are to have a Christ-like response in the midst of persecution. You know, you say, well, how do you know that we're going to suffer? Well, if you listen to what's happening in this most uh, upcoming, most recent election, what you have is one candidate saying that they will repeal legislation that would stop the Christian church from speaking their mind with respect to politics uh, because Lyndon Johnson passed uh, a a law back in the 50s that um, made it illegal at the risk of tax exemption loss to weigh into politics because, uh, again, history tells us that he was struggling against believers. Now one candidate wants to court believers, so they're telling us that if they get elected, they will diminish those laws and we'll be able to speak our minds from the pulpit again. Another candidate doesn't even court our vote because they've called us uh, those who are in a basket of deplorables. And so you can tell that at the outcome of this election uh, hangs in the balance how we will be seen in our culture and how we'll be treated. But even if Johnson's amendment or whatever it was is overturned, there's still all of this issue about hate crimes uh, in our culture now that you cannot teach certain things because they're considered hate crime. And and so I'm telling you that this persecution, if we are truly going to be the church, is right around the corner. And yet I believe that Stephen gives us three encouragements towards having the word of Christ richly dwelling in us, enabling us to be those who would be able to be spirit-filled not only in our living but in our martyrdom. And the first encouragement in the midst of suffering persecution is this. The spirit-filled Christian remains confident of Christ's authority, and dominion. Remains confident of Christ's authority and dominion. Prior to suffering, Jesus warned the disciples that they too would be hated. And he said again, the reason I'm telling you this is so that when it happens, you will have peace. We must not conclude when persecution comes our way, friend, that God has abandoned us. We must not conclude when Christians in our culture are not given the the privileges and the, the leeway that we have had for so long that God has abandoned us. 
Instead, we must understand that Christ is still in authority. Christ is still reigning over. I love what's in the background there. If you didn't notice, uh, I, uh, of course, it was my first time to notice that crown superimposed back there. Because we, we worship the King of Kings. And suffering and persecution that comes to us in no way diminishes the reality that our Lord Jesus Christ has authority over all. And so it is that this passage brings this out. Look at, look at this passage with me again. Look at verse 55. It says, But being full of the Holy Spirit, speaking of Stephen, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, you have likely read that before and you thought, well, that's kind of cool. I wonder what's going on there. I wonder why Jesus did that in this instance and we don't read of that anywhere else. The reason that Stephen is given this vision is to reinforce that Christ is in authority. Do you, do you understand what Stephen is seeing? He is seeing the same vision that Daniel indicated he saw as recorded in Daniel chapter 7. Remember Daniel, the Old Testament saint uh, in Babylon. He, he says, I, I was looking in a night vision and I saw one like a son of man being brought before the ancient of days and authority and dominion was given to him and and all of the nations of the world would then worship him. And Stephen is given this same reinforcement because he's filled with the Spirit. He understands this passage. And he's saying, this is what I'm seeing. He was given that vision. And in fact, his audience understood it as well because verse 57 says, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. They said, we don't want to hear this. We don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, Jesus used that title many times, Son of Man. And so when Stephen reinforces that this one whom they had crucified, who had risen, who had ascended back to heaven, is standing in this position in fulfillment of Daniel's vision, they are furious. But with respect to Daniel, with respect to Stephen, he is spirit-filled, and so he is given this encouragement that the one whom he worships, the one whom he is unwilling to back down on behalf of, is in dominion, in authority. What encouragement that God would give this spirit-filled one, strong encouragement in his hour of persecution. Stephen understood, the audience understood. And in his stoning, Stephen offers us, uh, as as they progress through this passage and they begin to stone him, Stephen offers us this second encouragement towards having the word of Christ dwelling richly in us, being spirit-filled. And that is that in the midst of suffering persecution, the spirit-filled Christian remains confident of their own eternal reward. Look at verse 59. Stephen is being stoned. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In Stephen's hour of death, while stones are being hurled at him, Stephen did not doubt 
Jesus Christ's authority or dominion because it seemed that, simply because it seemed that evil was controlling the moment. Nor did Stephen think that maybe he had sinned too much since he had believed in Jesus and he was not at this point worthy. In fact, it's interesting when you read different scholars and commentators on this passage. Some even say, well, uh, by persecution, God is giving these believers the opportunity to work out their faith and show God that they're serious and to cleanse themselves from whatever remains of sin. And I say, are you kidding me? That is so against the gospel. That is so against what Stephen says. Stephen didn't say, hey, hey, Jesus, Will you forgive me from everything that I have done since I placed my faith in you uh, till now or since I was baptized till now? Instead, Stephen has no doubt that his eternal reward is secure. But why? Because Stephen was filled with the Spirit. He allowed the word of Christ to dwell richly in him. He understood that it was the seed of the woman alone from Genesis 3.15 that would destroy the work of Satan, not his own good works. He understood that it was the, the seed of Abraham who would be a blessing not only to the descendants of Abraham, but to every, every family of the earth. He understood that Jesus was the one who was from ancient times, but born in Bethlehem to have an eternal throne. He understood from Isaiah that this Jesus was the one, the root of the stump of Jesse. He understood that this was the suffering Messiah from Isaiah 53. He understood from Isaiah 53 that while he had gone astray, God had placed the burden of his iniquities upon Christ. Not just part of them, all of them. And because Stephen was spirit-filled, he did not doubt his eternal reward at the moment of persecution. Friends, You and I, if we are to stand firm in the face of persecution, in no way alarmed by our opponents, we must understand that it is finished, that we are saved to the uttermost when we are saved, and that death no longer holds any power over us. That was a good place for an amen. Someone said it. Thank you. I think of, you know, we don't really like the thought of death even yet, though, do we? I think of the guy who was having heart issues and had had a pretty major heart attack. And uh, his son went with him back to the heart doctor, and he says, so how are you doing, you know, with your, with your fragility, you know, your, your, your mortality? And he's like, well, you know, I'm not really afraid of dying. Oh, good, Okay. I just wish I knew where I was going to die. What? Yeah, because then I wouldn't go there. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and while that's true, you know, none of, us are, uh, none of us are rushing towards death. But we also know that if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that death no longer holds the same fear that it holds for the unbeliever. And we no longer um, need to fear the sword as we may have uh, when we were unbelievers. It's interesting, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that um, Christ has released believers from the fear that Satan held over them, the fear of death. 
And so it is through faith in Jesus Christ that death no longer has that same power over us. But we only know that by believing in the Word of God and by knowing it more and more so that all of the confidence that the Holy Spirit has encouraged and inspired men to write would resonate with our hearts in the moments when we need it the most. So let me ask you a question. Would you be so confident that the risen and victorious Lord Jesus would receive you to himself immediately forever to remain in his presence as he has promised all whom have trusted in him or are there doubts remaining? Because I can tell you that I thought I was a believer. I thought I was a believer when I was about 34. And my wife asked me, she said, so if you were to die tonight, are you sure that you would go to be with God in heaven? I said, you can't know for sure. I think what will happen, honey, is that I'll come before him and we'll kind of talk about things, how, how I did, you know, what I did. Did you see this? And aren't you impressed with that? And, and yeah, that wasn't very good, but my heart wasn't really wanting that. You know, my, I had good intentions. And I think, you know, things will go well at the end. She said, you just don't get it. And then I started attending Bethany Baptist. And I think this pastor there, you know, that pastor by the name of Rich Burkle, I think he knew my background and he kept on preaching these messages about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So finally, I said, hey, can I come in and see you today? And he's like, yeah. And I said, if you could show me that the Apostle Paul, who I think said somewhere, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you could show me that he understood that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, I could believe it. I'm still waiting for that guy to walk through my office, the easiest uh, conversion you could get. He took me to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He read it. He said, listen to this. This is Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm like, that's in there? Wow, let's pray. You see, it was only by knowing the Word of God that I came to know God. And it's only by knowing the Word of God that you and I can stand firm, that we can be these spirit-filled believers in the face of persecution. And so you and I must refresh our souls with the Word of God. Fill your heart and your mind with the Word of Christ so that If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit can control your mind and remind you that all of your sins, all of your failures, all of your wrong desires have been forgiven at the cross. See, what's significant is that even this Apostle Paul, who was standing giving approval as Stephen was being martyred, That same Saul became Paul, and later he wrote, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf so that you might become the righteousness of God through faith in him. That is the glorious gospel, the the gospel of substitutionary atonement. You know what? I fear that so many people come to our churches uh, week in and week out And yet they don't understand what Christ has truly done for them. 
I ask people sometimes in counseling, so, so has God forgiven your sins? Yeah. Okay, good. Tell me about it. How did that happen? Well, I prayed. Okay, good. And, and why did he forgive your sins? Um, because I asked. Okay, good. But on what basis? How was, he, how was a holy God able to simply um, forgive your sin? What had to happen? Well, that's a good question. You see, they don't seem to understand that Christ has taken their place on the cross. That they deserve to die. That you deserve to die. That I deserve to die. But God placed the burden of my iniquities on Christ. And if you have believed that, you have passed from death to life. That's the glorious gospel. And when we embrace that, because we have allowed the word of Christ to dwell richly in our hearts, when it comes to persecution, we will not think that it is about us. Our suffering is not about something that we have done wrong. It's about something we've done right. That not only have we believed, but God has appointed us to represent Christ and to prove to those who would persecute us that death no longer holds any power over us. So that brings us to the third encouragement towards having the word of Christ. You see, my whole ambition as a result of this message is to get you to want to read and to memorize and to meditate on God's word more and more so that I, as one of the pastors that uh, you listen to now and then, uh, have a part in helping you to face the uncertain days to come. And so our third encouragement towards having the word of Christ richly dwelling in us, uh, thus being spirit-filled Christians, is that in the midst of suffering persecution, the spirit-filled Christian, listen, remains confident of their suffering's strategic value. You see, it's not simply about you. It's about what God does with your testimony when you are willing to stand firm in the faith. Verse 60 indicates that in the midst of his own execution, Stephen fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice and asked the Lord not to charge this sin against his murderous audience. And I tell you, that's an amazing act of grace. I think you and I could think that we could get there when we're not in the heat, in the battle, but I know in my flesh, when I feel like I'm persecuted, I'm like, hey, God, get them. Can't you do something here, God? (laughs) Make them pay for this. You know, you kind of feel like some of those imprecatory psalms. Don't let their head go down to the grave without paying for this. Let the fires of hell burn even hotter with their condemnation. But that's my flesh. You see, if I am allowing the word of Christ to dwell richly in me, then I'm recognizing that there's strategic value to my facing persecution, even to the point of martyrdom, with a spirit of grace, with a spirit of confidence. Do you remember what Jesus did as he hung on the cross? In fact, I believe that Stephen... Stephen's testimony is meant to invoke what Christ did. He cried out and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. 
friends, you, do you realize that the unbeliever would like to stamp out uh, the, the voice of the believer? The voice of the believer that is confronting them upon sin and rebellion against our creator God. And when the unbeliever who fears death as the termination of this life, of all that the unbeliever knows and all that the unbeliever holds dear, when the unbeliever witnesses a persecuted Christian having no fear of death, being confident that their eternal reward is secure because the Christian is confident of Christ's authority and dominion, that witness sends shockwaves through the unbeliever's heart. You and I must understand that the unbeliever is confronted with their own fear of death and their own fear of judgment when they witness a Christian having no fear of death nor judgment. And in their heart, they're asking, how in the world is this person so confident in the face of death? That's what Scripture says. This is what this Saul, who is in this passage, says later in Philippians chapter 1. He says he encourages Christians to stand firm in the face of persecution, saying, in no way alarmed by our opponents, which is a sign of destruction to them, but of salvation to us, and that too from God. Why? Because it's been appointed for us. Friends, we... We didn't just get appointed to believe and receive eternal life. We got appointed to believe and represent our Savior in this fallen world. You know, I often think, wow, why couldn't I have been born at the time when Jesus came the first time? That's just not fair. I want to be one of those. I wanted to, but you know what? I'm excited to think that we might be those that are alive when he rescues us from the wrath to come. But rescuing us from the wrath to come means that we're facing an element of it first. And how exciting that is. And even if it doesn't happen in our own day, we have been called to believe that it can. We have been called to believe that he could rescue us at any moment. That was said of the first century church at Thessalonica. That they were those who turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to await for his Son from heaven, even Jesus Christ, our Lord, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There's a fascinating postscript built into this passage. You've seen it. It's no longer a mystery. I brought it out in various ways. But we read of this, this young man named Saul, verse 58. And then we read of him again in verse 1 of chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And verse 3, and Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. But you know what? I have to believe because of what Paul wrote because of the truths that he tells us, that as he was doing that, he was continually confronted with their confidence in the face of persecution. So that certainly he was knocked off of his steed there on the road to Damascus, but it was all in conjunction with this growing sense of 
condemnation that he felt in his soul as he watched these Christians be unafraid of death. As he hearkened back to how Stephen had faced his own death, asking for forgiveness to all who were conducting that stoning. Friends, I may be wrong about us facing the type of persecution that I believe is just ahead, but even if I'm wrong, it's my responsibility to warn us that it could very well happen. And it's my responsibility to be part of that preparation in your life to help you prepare for it. And so if you're here today as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever your regimen of Scripture reading is, will you increase it? And will you seek to memorize more? And will you seek to meditate on it? And if you're here this morning and you're simply exploring the claims of Christ, will you allow this passage to convict you that the reality is for the believer, death no longer holds any power over us? And if you can't say that about yourself, because you know that you're a sinner, and you know that somehow you know that you will have to answer for all that you've done, would you consider the fact that the Bible teaches you that you can have your sin and your sinful record cleaned, cleared, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, by believing that when he died on the cross, what he cried out in those last moments, it is finished, paid in full, is true for you. And if you would just place your faith in that one who not only died for your sin, but rose again and has ascended and has promised to come again and to establish his kingdom on earth, his kingdom where he is King of kings and Lord of lords, then you will have eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Father, how we thank you for this example that you've left for us in the book of Acts. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Father, we are so thankful that Stephen gives us strong encouragement to be about your word, to not grow complacent, uh, that we know enough, that we're strong enough, but to always be less confident in ourselves, but more confident in you, willing to uh, continue to read and and read again your word, uh, knowing that, as Peter says, that um, longing for the, new, for the word like the newborn babe longs for milk, knowing that by it our souls will be saved. And so would you help us to long for that confirmation from your word more and more. Thank you for Stephen's example. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the men and women who are so faithful in doing your work over here in this community and even farther out. And so I pray... Father, that this would continue to be a lighthouse, not, of on, not only of community um, concern, but of salvation and, and boldly proclaiming the name of Christ uh, wherever these people go. And so we thank you and we give you the thanks and praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.